Peace be with you. I told my wife earlier, I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> well, as he said, my name is Raphael Peters. I'm one of the newest church planning residents here, part of the Sojourn Collective of Churches. You've heard from my brother D'Amico Bivens a few weeks ago, and our families were here, and we're excited to be finally in the city of Houston. We have a big family coming, so we, we appreciate you guys. We've got big families coming. Uh, Miko has a few kids. I have a two-year-old, and we have twins on the way. Y'all say that. Y'all be praying for me. We're also grateful for the sellers who have come with us as well, and they already have three kids, so y'all be praying for them. Um, but we're grateful. As some of you know, our first order of business is getting fully funded for this two-year residency that we have. We have to get 100% of the support that we need for the next two years, and we're not there. So what we'd like to do as well is to invite you as our soldier family to be a part of supporting us monthly. And what that looks like, we'd love to talk to you more about that after today's sermon and in the coming days and weeks. I see some of you already who have supported us, and I want to say thank you, and we're appreciative because what we're doing would not be possible if it wasn't for your support. As we begin our dive into Exodus this week in chapter 11, before we really do that, I want to reel in some important truths that we've stated each week, one being that the Exodus story is our story, not just some old history that has no relevance for us today, but something that we being New Testament Christians actively, presently find ourselves a part of this narrative and two, the Exodus is for our instruction. As we'll see today, things that warrant our attention and invoke our submission. If you let me, before we really get into chapter 11, I wanna help us get current today by sharing a little bit or recapping and replaying a little bit of what's happened before, mainly with the plagues. The plagues, as you know, if you've read the Exodus, is there are 10 plagues in total. As we'll see, what they did was they overcame the opposition of Pharaoh, who has placed in bondage God's people, Israel, who was notably described as God's firstborn son. What becomes obvious is the increased severity of God's judgment as each plague passes as a result of Pharaoh's resistance to not let go God's people. The result of the plagues and God's purposes in the plagues become clear. That the Egyptians know that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is Lord. Lord, the supreme being to whom all allegiance, obedience, and worship is due. Lord, the ruler of all who one should fear and be in awe of. One by one, these plagues happen, from the now turning into blood to frogs, gnats, flies, and to fast forward a bit, locusts infesting Egypt, to even the death of livestock and also utter darkness for three days. Remember that point. We see total chaos happening. And today, what we'll see in chapter 11 is the last plague, the death of the firstborn. Death, something hard to talk about. Interestingly enough, if we look at these plagues, it's a good point to take note 
is that they also had connections to the Egyptian gods. And it is made known and clearly visible that these gods cannot stand, they cannot compete, and they cannot compare to Yahweh, the great and mighty God of the Israelites. The plagues discredited the gods of Egypt and defiled their temples. So before we really get into chapter 11, I want you to know a little bit of something about me and when I preach. Miko may have shared this with you when he preached, but our background is dialogical, so what that means is we like a little bit of response. So feel free to say amen. Back in the day, what they used to say was if you didn't say amen and you didn't respond, the preacher would go longer. I'm just saying, y'all be ready. I got notes for days. No, I'm joking. Let's do it. So as we really get in, let's, let's begin this time in prayer and really cover this time in prayer and really ask the Lord to open our hearts if we would. Father, as we come to your word today, we want to come knowing who you are, being exposed to your character. God, you are sovereign. You are great and mighty. You are beyond what our finite minds can comprehend or understand. Father, you are so beyond creation. Father, you even existed before time itself. Father, allow that truth to overwhelm us today as we come to this text, as we come to this hard text about death. Father, would you please, by your grace and your mercy, open our eyes to see, our hearts to receive. Father, I know that there may be people out today that have not submitted and believed in you. Will you soften their hearts? God, I know that there are individuals today who are believers, but they lack faith. Will you increase their faith today? Will you put Jesus on display, our Savior, like never before? God, your word needs no assistance from me. I am only a mouthpiece, Father. Would you use my little for your glory? Father, would you move and do things that I can't do? Would you perform signs for us to see so that we respond in repentance and faith? In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. This passage of the last plague that was read before It presents some questions to us. I don't know if these are questions that you may have thought of before as you've read through the Exodus or questions that you may have thought of as the the passage was being read, but it presents some questions about God and his character. The first question that it presents is the question of, is God just? A question of God's justice. Is he acting in a way that is morally right or fair? The second question is on God's mercy. Is God merciful? Does he show kindness and compassion and gracious in giving what is not deserved? I believe that this passage answers both questions for us. And I believe that they answer with an emphatic yes. God is just, and he is merciful. God is the just judge who's shown mercy through his son, Jesus, our hope. Will you write that down in your notes? 
or on the tablet of your hearts. This is an important truth to understand and to anchor in. God is the just judge who's shown mercy through his son, Jesus, our only hope. Now that I've kind of shown you my cards, and you know the basis of my argument, I'd like to to go ahead from here. The chapter that we begin to read in chapter 11, it begins with a parenthetical statement in the first three verses. Pretty much what a parenthetical statement is, it's just a summary or a re-recording or a, a flashback, if you will, of what God has already said to Moses regarding Pharaoh, Egypt, and his people. It reads, starting at verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, yet one more plague will I bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So God has said in his foreknowledge and what he's already predestined and planned, what will happen multiple times before we even get to this text, this plague in chapter 11. So this plague shouldn't come as a surprise. The issue that we come into grips with with this passage is the severity of the plague and the reality of the judgment that Pharaoh has decided he won't receive. He instead, Pharaoh instead, stands in opposition to God believing that he can trump Yahweh in his infinite or limited power by continuing to keep in bondage the Israelites. But before we even get to the heart of this text, we see that he cannot trump or overthrow God's plan to lead his people out. He will let God's people free. Important truth, God has and is declaring his faithfulness and his commitment to his people. And he's backing it up. He's backing his word up. He's backing up his promises. He doesn't just make promises. He keeps them. His people will be set free. Pharaoh in Egypt will know the Lord great and mighty, and favor will be shown to his once oppressed people. God's justice and his mercy is on display for all to see in this passage. If you don't believe me, let's continue the dialogue. What we see in verses 2 through 3 is not only do the people of God get released, but they also take some possessions with them from the Egyptians through the favor that the Lord has given them and Moses. The Lord says to Moses in verse 2, Speak now in the hearing of the people, that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servant and also the people. I don't know if you've kind of seen this before, but this actually extends back, back into what God had already said in the burning bush to Moses in Exodus 3. He said that they would receive these things. And what they receive from these Egyptians will also be used later in the building of the tabernacle. They will use this silver and gold jewelry to build. I think the other thing 
that we have to see, and if we don't see, it would be negligent to miss, is what this transaction tells us about the character of God and His people who were once not favored and bound, unpaid for the labor that they once did. Its shares of Yahweh, the great I Am, is strong and powerful. He's victorious and able to redeem what was once lost for His glory. A just judge who demands that reparations be given for oppression. And now what seems as a distinct contrast is happening, his people receiving the spoils of his victory. The Lord has shown favor to Moses, has shown favor to his people. And it's surprising because they've been enslaved for 400 years. It's surprising because I'm sure at times they may have questioned some things, not knowing what God has already foreordained, already predestined. I'm sure there were times where they questioned God's goodness. It's in the text. I'm sure there were times where they questioned if God was merciful or wondered if God was merciful. But this is exactly what God has already foreordained. He is just. He is merciful. He has heard the cry of his people. God is not ignorant of their plan, of the pain, but has a plan. He would deliver his people. God is merciful. He's abounding in mercy. As we continue in verses 4 through 5. Verse 4, so Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There's something here. Like, throughout the plagues, we see times where God tells either Moses or Aaron to perform a sign or give a warning, and then times where we see God go himself in the midst of Egypt to perform a coming judgment. Here's the thing. There's grace that is unseen by Pharaoh during the times of Moses and Aaron where they're performing signs and warnings. And then there is judgment that is enforced by God during the times of Pharaoh hardening his heart. This reminds me a bit of a passage in Romans 2, where Paul is talking of God's righteous judgment. He says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. We need to take note today if the Exodus story is also our story and for our instruction that 
we shouldn't presume the kindness of God. It would be good to note that when we choose our way over God's way, it's not only dangerous, but deserving of the wrath that is due and if unrepentant, will receive. God has given Pharaoh opportunity to obey the word of the Lord and release his people. Christian, God is giving you opportunity today to respond and obey. Yet, don't do like Pharaoh, who chooses his way. Yet, do not harden your heart today to God's call and his opportunity that he is freely giving you right now. We can't just think that God is okay with us choosing our way and standing in direct opposition to him. A just judge doesn't look over an offense for the sake of love. A just judge punishes. And if he was loving, would correct a wrong, which also reveals mercy of God. I don't think we think about that when we see God discipline or correct, that it is actually mercy that is fueling that exchange. Verses 4 through 5, we see that Pharaoh is about to get the due penalty of his act of rebellion and his oppression of God's firstborn son, Israel. Pharaoh is not innocent by any means. And like I said, a just judge like Yahweh could not look over the offense created without retribution. Yahweh has set his judgment, and the calamity that is about to take place will not be partial. The judgment that God is about to ensue will not be partial, but it will serve notice to all Egyptians from top to bottom, from rich to poor, from king to peasant, from man to beast. This plague will prove God's superiority over even all the Egyptian gods or idols that the people of Egypt worshipped, including Pharaoh. No one is exempt. If you look at these different accounts and plagues, you see, like I said earlier, there's an Egyptian god that is challenged. From Hopi, the god of the Nile, to Heket, the frog-headed goddess of fertility, so on and so on, to even stronger gods considered by the Egyptians like Isis, the protector of children, or Ra, the sun god, and finally even Pharaoh himself, who the Egyptians considered a god. All these gods were defeated at the hands of God Almighty and could not stand. God was leaving his mark. And what we'll see in verse 7 is he was making a distinction. I think before we move on, it would also be important to see the crippling effect of the death of the firstborn in ancient Near East culture. In ancient Near East culture, the death of the firstborn would be a crippling effect of the family's legacy as they took double portion of their father's inheritance and represented special qualities in life. The firstborn for Pharaoh also would have even been the heir to the throne and next in line. But God had already made clear to Pharaoh, hey, if you don't let my people go, there will be death. So this isn't a surprise. What we'll also see is that Pharaoh in chapter 1, if you go back, 
he ordered the death of, of the, the sons of the firstborn or the sons of the Israelites because the Israel was becoming great in number and fear was becoming of the Egyptians. And what's really interesting is now God is using the same currency of judgment and punishment on Pharaoh. Poetic justice, if you will. Christian, God is just. Unbeliever, God is just, and he is judge and defender of his people. Be instructed today to know that God is the great avenger, not the movie, but the great avenger who sets wrongs right and will ultimately be the one who brings complete shalom to the world. So let's look at verse 7. I believe that verse 7 is the crux of this passage. God says here, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Now, this is weird language. Not a, growl, not a dog shall growl. What? What this is, is it's an idiom that is placed here to express how the people of Egypt will understand and see the situation for what it is. They'll know that this was a result of Pharaoh's refusal and opposition to Yahweh. They have ability to see despite the harshness. This will serve to show that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God makes a distinction between his covenant people and those that stand in opposition. The Lord makes a distinction between those that worship Yahweh and those that worship idols. The Lord makes a distinction between the great and mighty God of the Israelites and the horrible, not as impressive gods of Egypt. It's important for us to see and for them to know that this distinction that the Lord has made is not based on their works, Israel. The distinction that God has made for Israel is not based on anything that they have done. They are not special, but it is solely based on the covenant that God has made with his people. That's it. His choice. That's it. Today, believer, if God has distinctly called you out and called you his, it is not based on anything that you have done, but solely based on the the sole fact that he chose you and his grace extends to you. We see that God has made a promise and he keeps his promise. He hears the cry of his people. He is just and he is merciful. God has seen the unjust treatment of his people here. God has heard the cries and seen the brokenness and provides means of mercy. And the distinction that he made then, he continues to make. And it's solely through Jesus, our Lord. The only thing that we should rejoice in today and hopefully is the center of everything is Jesus who not only God has shown his mercy through, but also whom God has used to sow his justice. So harden not your heart today. God is the just judge who's shown mercy through Jesus, his son, our only hope.
Can I extend that out a bit about his son? Jesus, who was the firstborn son of God, who died for the sins of the world. He took on the penalty and wrath that we deserved. I can shout right there. Instead of God killing us, he instead chose to kill his son to appease his wrath that we deserve so that we have life. My brother Marshall Dallas shared this point, so I can't take it away from him, but I thought it was so good. Before we get to this plague, we see three days of darkness, and as the result, we see death happen. But Jesus, he experienced three days of darkness, but rose with all power and authority in his hands. The great and mighty. God is so just and merciful. He is abounding in it. It is no question It is an emphatic yes to his justice and his mercy. And our attempts to find life apart from Jesus will only result in death. May I ask you today, if I can, if I will, as we see the crux of this passage is distinction. What makes you distinct? Hopefully it's Jesus. And most of us would say Jesus makes us distinct But we neglect the Spirit's work in our lives and what God does when he enters the life of a believer. Jesus sends his Spirit who begins to work in our lives that begins to make us distinct and apart from the world. What makes you distinct today? My fear, if I be honest with you, because I know the remaining sin that exists in my own heart, as well as the remaining sin that exists in the room, is that many of us have not believed in Jesus and submitted to his lordship. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to submit. We have, like in Romans 2, presumed on the riches of God's kindness. We have instead chose our way, loved our things, lived how we want, worship ourselves, and storing up wrath. How is your life distinct? Who or what do you worship or love? Do the afflictions of Christ shape your life? Do the afflictions of Christ shape your thoughts, your actions, your decisions, and your passions? If not, if not, listen to me, I implore and beg of you, if not, do not harden your heart. You have opportunity today as God has granted you breath to respond to God making himself known just like he did to Pharaoh in Egypt. So harden not your heart. This truth is for the believer today and the non-believer. Turn to Jesus. God is our just judge who's shown mercy through his son, Jesus, our only hope. Turn to Jesus. I love the hymn written by Helen Lamell. Some of you may know it. Heavenly vision, better known as turn your eyes upon Jesus. These lyrics really resonated with me as I was studying this passage and was thinking deeply on the hope that we have and we need through Jesus, the son of God, the just judge and defender of his people. And I hope these lyrics resonate with you as you hear them. So please open your ears to receive this truth. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? 
No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more hath dominion, for more than conquerors we are. And turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes. Let us pray. Father, you are the just judge who's shown mercy to us through your son, Jesus. God, when we read this passage, God, we're struck by the judgment. But Father, my prayer is that just like we were struck by the judgment that was given to Egypt, that we be struck by the judgment that your son took on. That the reality is, is that you're a righteous judge. And you don't look over offenses. But in the same truth, Father, you knowing that truth, providing salvation and a solution to the reality of our hearts. Father, will you so soften the hearts of those in this room today who stand in opposition to you? who have instead chosen their way over your way. Father, will you make known, God, the severity of that decision? And will you also overwhelm them with your grace and your love that you provided hope? That you don't just provide judgment, but that you also provide mercy and grace May we see, God, that you are just, but that you also are merciful and gracious. You're long-suffering. God, you're patient. You're everything that we're not. And we need you today. So, Father, come. We thank you for Jesus. And I pray that we receive, we partake of your love today. God, will this word lead us out from this room, and lead us into action for the rest of our lives. Give us new hearts. Help us in the areas that we lack faith. And we thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.